Well, good morning, everybody. As always, welcome to those of you who are joining us online. If you guys remember, if you were here last week, I mentioned the fact that we were going to be suspending our series in Genesis just for a couple more weeks, and I'm going to be bringing you some updates on the future vision of the church. As I mentioned again last week, we used three words to describe it. We actually rolled this out last year, but we thought this would be a good time to revisit uh, that. Uh, and the three words are bigger, smaller, deeper. And of course, everything that we do here at Illuminate is undergirded by the message and the ministry of Jesus. And so when we talk about bigger, we actually do take our cue from him. There's this rather famous statement that Jesus made in Matthew 16. It's actually a promise when he says this, and I tell you, you are Peter. Peter is the guy who's having this conversation with, and in the original language, there's actually this fun little play on words because Jesus then says, and on this rock, both Peter and the word for rock are essentially the same, and the rock that Jesus is referring to is a statement that Peter makes about Jesus himself when he confesses, you are the Messiah. All of that prophecy that we find hundreds of years worth of it contained in the first half of the Bible, right, the, your Old Testament, all of those prophecies regarding a forthcoming Messiah, they're fulfilled in the person of Jesus, very specific prophecies. Peter makes this acknowledgement, and Jesus says, upon that rock, your confession of faith in who I am, he says, I'm going to build my church, and nothing is going to stop it. Nothing, yeah, he says, even the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's a reference to what would be the most powerful force there is, the forces of darkness. Jesus says, that's not even going to be able to stop it. And then in John chapter 12, he actually gives us the methodology by which he's going to grow his church when he says this. He says, and, and when I am lifted up from the earth, and that would be a metaphor that the Hebrews used to describe the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus... He says, when I am lifted up from the earth, he says, I'm going to draw all people to myself. So I put it like this before. The question should be asked, why is Christianity even around? Is that a fair question? should be. If you're thinking, that should be a question that should be asked. Why is Christianity even here? Like, why is it a thing? Because you have to understand in the first century AD, Christianity was this very, very small fledgling movement. The fact of the matter is, and the Bible is very candid with its details, it tells us that even the earliest followers of Jesus, including his own brother, or more accurately, his half-brother James, they weren't fully buying into the fact that Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God, that he was going to be the Messiah coming back from the dead. I mean, that's a pretty big thing, right? I mean, it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to do it. The only reasonable explanation for why Christianity exists is that Jesus did what he said he was going to do, meaning then that he is who he said he was. He came back from the dead. There was some spark that lit the flames that gave rise to Christianity when, at the time of Jesus, most people were in disbelief. The Bible's really clear in some of the details surrounding Jesus' uh, death, burial, and resurrection tells us that the people who opposed Jesus, they wanted nothing more essentially than to parade his dead body around the streets of Jerusalem on day four. Because they remember Jesus said, be buried, be in the ground three days, and then he says, I'm coming back. They remember these words. 
So if you want to put an end to Christianity, you put an end to Jesus. You expose him as a fraud and a liar. This is why the tomb was so well guarded. Something happened that gave rise, that gave birth, that fueled the Christian movement. Even the earliest followers of Jesus, again, when Jesus was crucified, they're huddled together in an upper room, and they're like, this is going to be bad for us, man. They just crucified our leader. They didn't fully absorb the concept of a Messiah that would come and be crucified and killed at the hands of men. This is why Jesus says, the method by which I'm going to build my church is simply this. I'm coming back. I'm coming back. And because he did what he said he was going to do, the flames of Christianity were lit. So much so that about 300 years later, the Roman Emperor Constantine would declare Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire. So this is the methodology. Now, what's interesting is that we have a part in this because we are called to be witnesses of Jesus, to give testimony to the reality of his life. How do we do that? Not just in our words, but by our lifestyle, our actions, our attitudes. It's been said that for many people, we are the only Jesus that they will see or hear. So by God's grace, he has been building his church here at Illuminate. He's been adding to our numbers. And so at the same time, as we grow bigger, it's important for us to grow smaller because a goofy thing happens as the church begins to grow. People can come and be anonymous. And we don't want that for you. We want you to get connected. We weren't meant to live life in isolation from one another. So let me just put it to you very candidly and vulnerably. I need you but you also need me. This is why we're constantly talking and encouraging people to get involved in close-knit community where you can be known and know others, where you can express the one another's that the Bible talks about, pray for one another, bear one another's burdens. You laugh, you cry together, confess your sins to one another. Sometimes we're not very good at that because there's some high vulnerability built into that. But in these environments, it really is the only way that your spiritual roots are going to grow deep. And so that, that, that right there might be part of the solution to your challenge. Maybe you feel a little stagnant or stuck in your faith, maybe even a little apathetic. Could it be that you're not plugging yourself into all that God has provided, his spirit, his word, and his People. So this is why we're always wanting to take what grows bigger and make it smaller because the ultimate purpose is to grow deeper. That's discipleship. That's being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, lest anybody mistakenly understand exactly why Jesus came, he puts it very plainly. And I'll tell you, there was a time in my life when I really, I, I misunderstood a lot about who Jesus was. Because I kind of view Jesus as, uh, you know, as, as this good moral teacher. He said a lot of profound things, did a lot of good things, like, you know, he, like he cared for the poor. Um, in many ways, I kind of view Jesus as just this guy with long hair. Maybe he was chewing on some granola and wearing a pair of Toms. You know what I'm saying? But that's not really how Jesus described himself. So this is what he says. He says, you want to know what I'm about? In Luke chapter 19, he says, let me, let, me, let me tell you why 
why I'm here. He says, for the Son of Man, that's a reference to himself, he came to seek and to save the lost. To seek and save the lost. So I was having a conversation with a friend about a month or so ago, and I actually shared this statement with him from Jesus, and he immediately got offended. And he got offended because he didn't like being referred to as lost. And I said, I appreciate that, but let me help you understand what, what Jesus is, is saying here. Essentially, what Jesus is describing is the state of humanity in that we are all searchers. We are all constantly searching for something that will give us joy or peace or satisfaction or meaning or purpose. We're all constantly searching for those things. And very often we try to find those things in relationships, and there's nothing wrong with that, but ultimately in the end, even the best human relationship at some point is going to let us down. So we live in the desert. It's kind of like this scene where these people are wandering around in the desert, and they're looking for something to satisfy their thirst, and they keep finding these wells, but in the end, their thirst is really never satisfied. And so they, they move on to the next thing. And certainly in a spiritual context, those who are spiritually, spiritually lost, they have no relationship with the God who created them, or they don't understand what kind of relationship God intends for them to have. And so when Jesus comes, he says, let me tell you, this is why I came. I came to help people find God, because right now it's kind of like they're wandering in the desert, they're searching in the dark, and I want to bring light. I want to bring water to them. Now, Jesus told several parables about what it means to be lost in order to help people understand really what he's talking about. And essentially, the bottom line is this. He's saying, people matter to God. And we know that because Jesus would ultimately give his life for people. It's a simple expression. It's, it's true. The greater the sacrifice, the greater the love. So when Jesus is nailed to a cross, essentially what he's proclaiming to you is... Let me show and prove to you how much I care about you. I'm willing to sacrifice to give my life for yours. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, actually, Jesus came to die. The Bible is very clear in painting the sobering reality. The Bible contains good news and bad news. The bad news is we are born into a dysfunctional relationship with the God who created us. You want to know why the world is so jacked up? It's because we all do things that are self-serving. We don't like to think of ourselves in that light, but that's really why the world is a messed up place. And to some degree, we all have to take ownership of that. And God, because he's holy and he's righteous and he's just, he can't just ignore all the wrongs that humans do. So those things have to be dealt with. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. This is why Jesus died. He died in our place. The Bible refers to this as a substitutionary atonement. So he took our penalty upon himself. To paraphrase Martin Luther, we give Jesus all of our wrongdoings, all of our junk, and in return, he gives us eternal life. That's what the heart of the gospel message is, which literally means good news. So that's why Jesus came, to seek and to save the lost, those who are wondering. People matter to God. This undergirds absolutely everything we do at this church. Everything is driven by this. So Jesus tells several parables about lost things. Now, a parable is a short story that packs a punch. And probably the most famous of all of his lost parables is this story about lost sheep. Now, in order to understand what he's saying, I want to give you a little bit of the background. Jesus made quite a few enemies in his day. 
it might surprise you to know that the people that despised Jesus the most were religious people, the religious leaders. They hated Jesus. They were the ones that wanted him crucified. But then there's this other group in society that loved to be around Jesus. And the religious people and the people that loved to be around Jesus, well, let's just say one looked down on the other. So Jesus tells them a parable. And in this parable, it's only a few sentences long, but it's unbelievably profound. Because not only does Jesus point people to the heart of God, but he also points out the self-righteous attitude and heart of religious people. So it's all in the context of Jesus revealing who he is and why he came. So let's read it together. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. It says, now the tax collectors and the sinners, they were all drawing near to Jesus. So wherever Jesus want, sort of the undesirables of the city, they were attracted to him. Sinners, tax collectors. Tax collectors were notorious for being cheats. It's like, hey, it's time to pay your taxes. Okay, well, how much do I owe? Well, how much do you have? Jesus spent time with sex workers. There's something about Jesus, his kindness, his compassion, his mercy. They were drawn to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled. The word grumbled means to complain. Now, let me tell you about the Pharisees and the scribes. These were the religious leaders of the day, but they weren't just religious leaders. They had tremendous political influence. They held sway over religious and political life for the Jews. They literally believed it went from God directly to them to everybody else. And they hated Jesus because he too had the audacity to refer to himself as a religious leader, a rabbi, just like they were. But he was bringing a very different message in the name of God. And they saw him as a rule breaker, which he was. He broke their rules, but not God's rules. In fact, at one point, he says to them, you guys add so many rules. You take the things that God said to the places where God never took them. And you know what? You make it a burden for the people. It's like you're making the people jump through all these hoops and do all these things, and the people are just being weighed down. And you love it. Because that keeps you in a position of authority. That keeps you at the top of the social food chain. But you know what? You don't even understand the heart of God. So you can see this conflict is being set up. And so Jesus launches into this parable because they have a problem with the way Jesus conducts himself. So Jesus tells a story in response. So he told them this parable, verse 4. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost just one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, picks it up, puts the sheep around his shoulders, he carries it back to safety. And he's rejoicing. By the way, this wouldn't be an easy thing to do. Sheep can be heavy, 85, 100 pounds. So you're picking up this big animal, 
You're putting it around, around your neck, and you're walking it back to safety. And then when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, and he says to them, be happy with me, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And now for the punchline, verse 7. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Short, simple, and super profound. Jesus is communicating so much in such a short time. Let's make sure we understand what he's saying. So the shepherd would be God, and the sheep would be those who are far from God, those who don't yet know God. Now, as you may know, shepherds were at the bottom of the social ladder. We know that their testimony was not admissible in court. Why? Because they were notorious for being cheats. Um, It wasn't uncommon for a shepherd to steal the flock of someone else. It wasn't uncommon for a shepherd to, you know, just kind of graze on someone else's land. These kinds of things happened a lot. So shepherds were considered untrustworthy. You couldn't trust and count on their testimony in a court of law. They were at the bottom of the social ladder. Meanwhile, the dudes that are in front of Jesus are part of religious hierarchy. They're at the top of the social ladder, the Pharisees and the scribes. Jesus is kind of savage in this story because what he says is, consider this, Pharisees, you're all shepherds. And they're like, what? (laughs) Say what? You refer to us as shepherds? Yeah, just, just, uh, let's just think of yourselves as shepherds. You've got all these sheep, but one is lost. Now, you all know that you're going to go out and find that one sheep. You put it on your shoulder, and you carry it back to safety, and everybody's like, you got it back? Oh, yeah, all right. Let's rejoice. And what I'm telling you is that heaven rejoices over one sinner who is repentant. Sort of one lost sheep that returns. Heaven throws a party. But then you have these 99 people who think they don't need to repent. Why? They already think they're righteous. And actually they are self-righteous. So Jesus is just kind of, he's just kind of poking at them a little bit. Gotta love it. When we think of sheep, we think of these little soft, cuddly, lovable little creatures, right? Like Mary had a little lamb. His fleece was white as snow. Everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go, right? Little sheep are, they're just amiable little creatures. Now, if you were to be called sheep in the first century AD, you would be offended by that. Because they understood sheep to be very helpless animals. Sheep have to have shepherds in order to thrive, right? It was interesting because after the first service, I was sharing some things, and after the first service, uh, this woman came up to me. She's 80 years old. And she said, you know, I was a shepherdess. And there would be times at night when I'd be woken up 
because the sheep would be out in the pasture and all of a sudden I'd start hearing them cry out. And I knew immediately that I needed to go help them because something was outside of the fence and it disturbed them. And if you know sheep, they're kind of skittish. They're always anxious. They're filled with anxiety. There's a reason why people are compared to sheep. Also, if you're ready for it, sheep are are fairly unintelligent. Have you seen some of those videos? Have you seen that video from Turkey a few years ago? One of the sheep sort of breaks out, travels to the edge of this cliff and is eating and keeps 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 eating and keep and it falls. Thousand more sheep follow that one. Some of the sheep live. You know why? Because there was such a huge pile of sheep, they started landing on each other. <laughs> I believe God created sheep for the sole purpose of helping us understand who we are, if you're ready for it. Sheep are really interesting. Sheep are driven by greener pastures. Did you know that? Here's a scary thing. Just because it's green doesn't mean it's healthy. Toxic weeds are also green. And when sheep see greener vegetation, they're drawn to it, regardless of whether it's good or bad for them. Do you realize that? We have a saying, the grass is always greener where? And then you get to the other side and you realize, I gotta mow this thing every day. Isn't it, it's interesting. It's crazy how relevant this, the Bible is when it comes to humanity. You know that sheep will, because of their desire to find greener pastures, they're drawn towards it. They'll climb up to places where they can't get down. It's like they'll climb up there and then they'll be munching. They'll be like, how am I going to get down? Didn't think that one through. Oh, well. They'll climb down to places that they can't get out of. So this imagery is super relevant, and the, and, and the people, they immediately recognize what Jesus is saying. You're going to have to go down. You're going to have to remove that sheep. But here's the other thing about sheep. They are, they are very anxious animals. So I used to have, I had this dog. I don't know what happened. So this dog like grew up in the hood back in the day or something, because every time it was a rescue, every time the gate was open, the dog would be like, bam, and it would run out the gate. So I'd have to get in the car, drive around the neighborhood. I'd find it in the neighbor's yard just like sniffing the roses, you know, and I'd open up the car door, and the dog would come running, and we'd get right back in the car, and we'd go home. Sheep aren't like that. When a shepherd gets close to sheep, even the shepherd, even the one that the sheep knows, the sheep start to get real nervous. What are you doing? Why are you so close to me? Wait, don't, t- wait, don't touch me. Don't touch me. You're touching me. You're touching me. You're t- and the shepherd will pick up the sheep, and the sheep's thinking, oh my gosh, I'm being killed. And the shepherd's thinking, don't resist. I'm trying to save you. The sheep thinks he's being attacked. And the shepherd's saying, no, no. I need to do this for your own good. It's like having little kids, right? You're raising little kids and you have a two-year-old or a three-year-old and you try to explain to them, now listen, don't go out in the street. Why? Because there's this thing called a car and it's going to plow into you. It's bigger than you and you can get hurt or killed and I love you and I want you around here. Don't go out in the street. And your kid starts to go out in the street and you say, hey, listen, we're going to have to bring some discipline into your life so that you know that's not a good thing for you. And that's kind of what, that's exactly what God's word is. It's like, it has these protective fences. Yeah, kind of like 
keeps the, the sheep safe. Now what happens is some people, and this is the problem with the Pharisees, they built fences outside of fences and then fences outside of those fences and fences, right? And they built fences inside. And so the people were like, what do we do? What do we not do? And Jesus blows through all those fences. And he says, let's just stick to what God says because if we operate within God's fences, we're all gonna be so much better. Even if we don't fully understand that what looks greener on the other side is actually toxic and it'll make you sick. So there's a lot being communicated here in, in just this short parable. So there's this psalm, Psalm 23, very famous psalm. And the psalmist writes, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This is a perfect way to start it because that's what shepherds do. Shepherds take care of the needs of the sheep. So he says, when God is my shepherd and I follow his instruction and his leading, I don't have any need. And then he gives some examples. He says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. So in order for sheep to lie down, they have to feel safe and secure and protected. He leads me beside still waters. Still waters were known as a place of rest and refreshment. But it's not just a physical uh, safety that God provides. It says he restores my soul. <sighs> Suicidality is it's a major problem. And not just in America, but worldwide. People's souls are aching and they're crying out for some help. And there are so many things that just kind of, it's just like piling dirt on the soul. And God says, you know, I can take care of that for you. And God's word is, is like this salve, it's like this soap that just scrubs your soul clean. He leads me in paths of righteousness, and here's why, for his name's sake. This is pretty cool, because the Bible says it's like a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. When things appear so dark, we're not sure what direction to take. And so he guides us in righteousness. Righteousness is a big polysyllabic word that simply means right actions. To know the difference between right and wrong and then to choose the right. God places that in our lives so that his nature would actually be reflected. So in other words, when people look at the lifestyle of God's followers and they say, you know what? These people are blessed. They got a whole lot less drama it's not that they don't have pain and suffering, but man, they have a whole lot less drama in their lives. They're able to cope with things. They're able to, to see things in a different light. They have this eternal perspective, the temporary nature of these things. They think differently. They spend their money differently. They're generous. They're compassionate. They're kind. They return hate with love. All of these things are a reflection of the shepherd. So in my office, I've had this, it's, it's very old now. It's this little post-it note. And I don't know, probably 20 years ago, 25 years ago when I was a younger pastor, I heard this phrase and I wrote it down. And it's been a guiding principle for me in pastoral ministry. And it simply says this, good shepherds smell like what? Sheep. Good shepherds smell like sheep. And the condition of the flock is a representation of the care of the shepherd. That's the principle that he's talking about here, right? He leads me in paths of righteousness, why? For his name's sake, so that people would see the glory of God through our lives as we live in obedience to him. 
So, now, since we all have this, this natural uh, inward disposition to pursue things that are greener on the other side but aren't necessarily uh, good for us, um, we've all essentially placed ourselves in the position of shepherding um, our own lives. And um, the outworking of that isn't always so positive. Because the other thing that Jesus is pointing out is the simple fact that on our own, we can't save ourselves. Friends, we have to have help. We have to have outside help. Uh, we don't like to spend time thinking and meditating on the fact that we often do things and say things that hurt others. And ultimately, a lot of times, we end up uh, harming ourselves as well. We don't like to think of ourselves as being that bad. But I love what Pastor Tim Keller says. He says, the reality is, you're far worse than you think you are. I've mentioned it before, a fun little book titled The Day America Told the Truth. All kinds of interesting things were revealed about Americans or what Americans revealed about themselves. And one of the questions they asked is this, do you think you're better looking than the average American? Well, nearly 85% of Americans responded yes. <laughs> now, I'm not a statistics major, but I'm pretty sure that doesn't, how does that work? I mean, some of us have to be ugly, right? <laughs> we just have to admit that. Some of us have to be ugly, but nobody wants to admit that. Social psychologists call it the self-serving bias. His is really interesting. Those same people, when they're made aware of the self-serving bias, overwhelmingly, they agree that it does exist. Also, overwhelmingly, they agree that it doesn't apply to them. The Bible tells you that you're much worse than you think you are. But it also tells you you're far more loved than you know. You catch that? You are far more loved than you know. How do we know that? The greater the sacrifice, the greater the love. That's why Jesus says, what more proof can I give you in that I'm doing for you what you can't do for yourself. I'm paying your debt. The Bible says that we all fall short of God's standard, every single one of us, including religious people. These people think they're self-righteous, and that was their problem. I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The religious leaders are stunned that Jesus would eat with these people. To eat with someone was to say, we're friends. There is no barrier between you and me. And they loved him. And the Pharisees hated him. And he was, had the audacity to call himself a religious leader. What kind of faith community is this guy going to build? Well, take a look at it. Because essentially what Jesus is doing is he's building a faith community from the very people that the religious people rejected. And they couldn't stand it. So it's not just lost people that are lost. Religious people can also be lost. So it's beautiful grace-driven community where everybody is welcomed and this is the very thing, according to Jesus, that gives God joy. Heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Who do you think he's referring to? Who are the 99 who think they don't need to repent? Now, they get the message because after these things, they want to kill Jesus even more. 
So he's actually indicting the false, the, the false religion of these leaders because they're totally indifferent to the needs of those who are far from God. They didn't even want to be polluted by them. So that's what makes the gospel of Jesus so radically different. And this is where you'll find joy. You have to picture yourself as the sheep that was grazing in greener pastures, but you find yourself on the side of a cliff. And there's nowhere to go but down. And it's not going to be good for you. And in that moment, Jesus kind of works his way up, finds you, and rescues you. When the concentration camps were opened up shortly after the fall of Nazi Germany, people were stunned by what they saw. They couldn't imagine being part of a regime that treated people so horribly. But there's something else that hit many of them. There were a lot of good people who kept silent and said and did nothing. See, they weren't, they weren't like participating in the actual torture or the experience. No, no, they're way better than that. These are good people. But these good people kept silent. They didn't do anything about it. Why? Self-preservation. We're not as good as we think we are. We're more loved than we know. That's the heart of the message of Jesus. And so the joy of heaven is to bring people who are far from God, near to God. My, my, one of my personal ambitions is to take as many people to heaven with me as possible because God is in the business of bringing lost people home. I have the great privilege of introducing to you to, to some friends, the Savages. Their story is great. I'm super thankful that they had the uh, courage and vulnerability to share it uh, with you. But it's a really good example of everything that we do here at Illuminate. And I don't want it to get lost on us. We always want to have the favor of God upon us. How do you have God's favor? You accomplish his will. You help those who are far come near. So I want you to take a look uh, at their story. And again, I'm super grateful that the Savages shared it with us. Our story is a bit unconventional. We met in 2009, where all true love stories start at a bar. Um, we ended up falling hard in love, what we thought was love. We started dating, and then we found out we were having our first daughter, Madison, about six months into our relationship. Moved in together, and we started our lives as a family of three. Um, times were tough. We worked opposite schedules. I worked mornings through the day. Rachel worked nights. Um, financial struggles, uh, communication struggles. We then found out we were having Reese um, when Madison was about a year and a half, which was exciting. But unfortunately, our relationship was still not great. Shortly thereafter, we decided to separate, take some time apart for a little while. But it worked out in our favor, because I think it redirected our minds. So we got back together a few months later. It's a very short stint apart. Yeah. Uh, we got married, the girls are growing, Maddie started kindergarten, um, and that's when we 
met our very best friends, the Martins. Michael and Scott started talking at Parent Pickup. He was like, who's this dad with the gauges and the tattoos? He seems pretty awesome. Come to find out he's a pastor. I had always had a relationship with God. I, I grew up in the church, but Michael didn't have that. Yeah, I always knew that Christ was with me. There was somebody looking over me, somebody, somebody with me my entire life. I knew that. I just didn't know how to really connect. And Scott just had a wonderful approach to it where he just kind of put it out there and it intrigued Michael. And it's when Illuminate was Saturday night. So of course that's a busy night as a server. So I was unable to attend. But what I thought was so incredible at the time was that Michael brought our two little girls consistently every Saturday night. He showed up. Pastor Jason's teachings really, really spoke to his heart. And I began to see the changes in him. I wanted to become baptized. Um, so I did that with your support and the family support was amazing. Everyone at Illuminate has been instrumental in our walk together and as a family and I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. It's tough sometimes for us to think back on how we got through life without the Lord on our day to day and we weren't truly living until we found the Lord and we found Illuminate and it's become a constant for us. And to see now where we are and to know that he was blessing us even through our trials. Yeah. He was with us all through that. And until you, until you get out of the darkness, can you look back and see God was always there. Yeah. He was always on our side and he was always fighting for us. Thank you. That's just one of the many stories that gives you a glimpse into the why behind the what. And so I'm going to have you pray with me. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're the one that's been far from God. And what you need to know is the 99 was left for you. What's your response? Well, surrender. <laughs> you just give in. That's, that's the best possible place. Essentially, repentance means agreeing with God about who he is and who you are, what Jesus has done for you. We've all been born into this dysfunctional relationship with God. That's the great unifier in all of humanity. We're all at the foot of the cross, exposed as Savior. That's why Jesus came. That's why in Christianity it's nothing but humility and grace and mercy and compassion and kindness. And if you want that, you simply tell God. That's what it means to pray, it's just communicating with God. You just simply say, I, I know that I want that. I need that. I've been wandering around. I've been searching. I've been, I'm lost. And Jesus came to find me. If that's the desire of your heart, it's really important that you communicate that with someone. Please talk to me after the service or somebody on the stage. We would love to have that conversation with you. And for the rest, the prayer this week has been, God, place it on the hearts of the Illuminate family. Who is their one? Who is their invite? Who is, who is it that needs to see Jesus in me? Now, I would imagine that someone comes to your mind immediately, at least one person. That's the Spirit of God speaking to you. Let's not ignore it. Let's step into it and see how heaven rejoices.
as we give witness and testimony that God is our good shepherd and we communicate the life that Jesus came to give us not only here but in the life to come Father as always we ask that your spirit would speak and move and that we would respond in a way that does bring you honor and glory I know at times it can be difficult to step into that Lord but those fears are unfounded because we know that this is what you want. God, the heartbeat of Jesus, would you create that heartbeat within each one of us? Father, I'm thankful for the many stories that have been told through the years, the last six years here to illuminate, believing and trusting that more and even the best is yet to come because we believe, Jesus, that you are building your church and nothing is going to stop it. And you've given us the dignity of partnering with you in that. What an honor. Go before us in all things for your glory. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. And God's people said, amen.